Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. On the seventh day the child died. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Royce and I'm one of the elders here at Hill City. And it is an honor to be sharing God's word with you today. So up here on the screen, you'll see a picture of my family. This is my family, my wife, and our four kids. And uh, as they get older, I've been noticing something, that they all are very different. And if you have kids, you can probably relate. Every one of them is very different. And I've been noticing my youngest son, who's there on the bottom right, he is full of passion. No matter what it is, whether it's school or friends or sports, he is all in. And this is really good most of the time. He brings a lot of energy, a lot of joy, but sometimes it means a lot of fear. And so the other night I was putting him to bed and he couldn't fall asleep because he was afraid. So I went in and checked on him. I'm like, what's going on, buddy? And he's like, daddy, I'm scared monsters are going to get me. And so, believe it or not, I am just now learning what to do in this situation, okay? So, so this is my fourth kid, and with my first three kids, I'm pretty sure I handled this very wrong, okay? And that's because I tend to be an over-explainer. Um, so if this would have happened with my first three kids, I think it would have gone something like this. I would have said something like, okay, well, first off, monsters aren't real, okay? They don't really exist. Uh, I know you've read about them in books, maybe you've seen movies about them, but they're not real. Um, there are other bad things in the world you could be afraid of, but <laughs> monsters aren't one of them. So, good night, buddy. Uh, not helpful, not, not helpful at all. Too many words were, were just said. And so, thankfully, I found this podcast, I listened to this podcast recently, and it said, this is how you respond to fear, especially like these late night fears with your kids. You validate it, and then you speak a simple, confident truth. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. So I listen to this podcast, and I'm ready. So in this moment with Malachi, this is what I did. I said, hey, thanks for telling me that. I have good news for you, bud. No monster, there are no monsters here. You are safe. And it works. Like, this guy knows what he's talking about. What, what I saw on Malachi's face is this look of relief. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, really. He's like, ah, oh, okay. And he went to sleep. I'm like, man, this is magic. I wish I knew this a long time ago. Um, but so why was he able to do that? Why was he able to go to sleep? It's because Malachi trusts me. And I love that Malachi trusts me. For some selfish reasons, it usually just makes life easier if my kids trust me. But I think the bigger reason is I love it that he trusts me because it brings him peace. And what we're going to see today is we're going to follow along with David through some really dark times. 
And we're going to see God speak simple, confident truths to David. And even though it's a really dark time, we're going to see David trust God and it will bring him peace. So let's get into it. So last week, we saw David do the unthinkable. So what David did is he strayed from God's path, from God's way, and he went his own way. And he committed some pretty terrible sins. He stole a man's wife, he stole Uriah's wife, and then he had Uriah killed. And in the wake of David's sin, God sends Nathan to confront him. And Nathan cuts through any excuses David might make, and he just speaks the plain truth to David. And it's not pretty. It is not good news for David. Nathan tells David that his sin will have consequences. And then he breaks down what those consequences will be. He says it's actually going to be four things. He says, number one, the sword will never depart from David's house. Number two, God will raise up evil from David's house. Number three, God will take David's wives and give them to his neighbor, and finally, David's son will die. So in other words, the result of David's sin will be violence, evil, shame, and death. And Nathan's last words to David are these. He says, the child who is born to you shall die. So needless to say, this is a really dark day for David. And verse 15 tells us that Nathan leaves, and then the next thing we read is this. It says, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So right after David learns what's going to happen, it starts happening. David's newborn baby boy is sick. And I'm sure Nathan's words are just ringing in his ears. The child who is born to you shall die. And I just can't imagine what David's feeling in this moment. I'm sure he's feeling a lot of things. This is probably the lowest point where David's ever been, and I'm sure he feels horrible. He's probably feeling guilt, fear, grief, heartache, confusion, anger. And there's lots of things David can do in this situation. David could try to fix this on his own. We saw him do that last week. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So what does David do? I can fix this. Let's get Uriah back here from the battlefield and that everything will be all right. But then David refuses, and, or, or Uriah refuses. And David says, it's okay, we can still fix this. Uh, let's just send Uriah to the battle lines and have him killed. And so something similar might be going through David's mind. Okay, my son is sick, I can fix this. So he could try to fix things. He could get mad at God. He could blame God for what's happening. He could get defensive. He could make excuses. He could complain. David, I imagine, he, he might just feel like he just wants to shut down. Just hang his head and just hope this all goes away. But David doesn't do any of those things. Let's, let's see what David does. It says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So what does David do? David falls on his face before God. And I would think that would be a hard thing to do, but it seems like there's no hesitation here. It just says, David therefore sought God. So I'm trying to think, what might be going through David's mind as he does this? And I think it's probably a few things. 
I think David is starting to see that God tells the truth. All, all through his life, he's actually seen this, that when God says something is going to happen, it happens. And now he's seeing it again. God said, the child who is born to you shall die, and now his son is sick. And I think not only that, not only is he learning that God tells the truth, but I think he's remembering some things that God said to him. And so uh, let's go back to Nathan's rebuke of David. In verse 7, we see God's first words to David after he sins. And these are those words. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. The first word to David after he sins is not about his sin. It's about his identity. God says, I anointed you. I anointed you. I chose you. You are my king. This sin, it doesn't define you. I do. And again, the first word on David is not his sin. The first word is, I anointed you. And I think in this moment, Satan would have loved to bury David in his shame. But God reminds David who he is. And that's the first truth we see God speak today. When we sin, God reminds us who we are. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to run to him so he can tell us the truth. And that's what we see here with David. God says, this isn't you. Remember, I anointed you. You are a man after my own heart. And David takes God at his word and he repents. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoeo. Had to practice that one. Metanoeo, which literally means to make up your mind, to decide. And so that's what David does. He makes up his mind to trust God. And we see this play out in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is interesting because it's one of the few psalms that actually has a timestamp on it. We know exactly who wrote it, and we know exactly when they wrote it. So Psalm 51 is a psalm of David right after Nathan confronts him about his sin. So it gives us a glimpse into David's heart right at this moment. And in this psalm, David basically says three things. He says, I was wrong. I need help. God, help me. So let's look at it. First, he says, I was wrong. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David said, I was wrong. He accepts responsibility for his sin and, and says that God is, has every right to discipline him however he sees fit. And he leaves it at that. We see David doesn't dwell on his sin. He confesses it. And then he says, I need help. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So what is he saying there? He says, this sin runs deep. I was born with a wicked heart, and there is nothing I can do about that. And so he finally says, God, help me. And not once, but 16 times, David cries out 
to God for help. We see the first four in verses 1 and 2. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And David's just getting started. Twelve more cries for help in verses 7 through 12. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sixteen cries for help. And he ends with, uphold me with a willing spirit. And I think this is really interesting because David is saying, I need to be forgiven. I need forgiveness. But even more than that, I need freedom. I need to be set free from my sin. I never want to go through this again. I want to choose you. I want to trust you, not just this time, but every time. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 51 is a really powerful psalm, and I think it's powerful because everything David just said is actually really hard to say. For me personally, it is really difficult for me to admit when I'm wrong. My wife and kids know this really well. When my wife and kids call me out on something, I make this face, like this squinty face, like I'm in pain for some reason. I'm in pain and I'm confused. And it's like I'm thinking, how could you ever think that I could do something wrong? Are you serious right now? And it's because I don't want to hear it. But when God softens my heart, when I'm able to listen, it is so much better for me. It's hard, but it's so much better because when I'm able to listen to someone correct me in love, it gives God a chance to work. And that's what we see with David. After David repents, God acts and God restores David. And we get a glimpse of this in verses 24 and 25. So this is after David's son has died, he goes to Bathsheba. And this is what it says. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah is an awesome name. Um, But why Jedidiah? Because Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. In the midst of this ugly mess, we see this beautiful picture of redemption. God is saying, I love you. God never leaves David. Instead, he redeems him. So I remember a summer in college that I worked as a camp counselor. So I got the joy and privilege of hanging out or or being in charge of a cabin 
of a bunch of fourth and fifth grade boys for two months. Uh, and it was really great, but it also had its challenges. And especially there were these two boys that could not get along. They just knew how to push each other's buttons, and so they were constantly arguing, constantly getting after each other, and I was always having to break it up. And one day, I don't even remember what happened, but I was like, that's it, I've had enough. That's it, come with me, we're going to the principal's office. So I took them to the camp director, and I sat them down, and, and I explained the situation to the camp director. And he looked at me and he said, okay, what do you want to do about it? I was like, uh, well, here was my plan. Bring them here to you and you punish them. Like, do your thing. And uh, he was like, he, he could tell I wasn't really getting it, so he threw me a bone. He's like, you know, I've noticed the putt-putt course might need to be cleaned up. And I'm like, yes, that's a good idea. I like that. Uh, I'm like, okay, guys, you guys need to go clean the putt-putt course. And the camp director was like, no, no, you're still not getting it. He's like, the three of you need to go clean the putt-putt course. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. Okay, got it. So, so that's what we did. The three of us go and we clean the putt-putt course together. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. It was actually this picture of what God does with us. When God calls us to repentance, it's not something we do alone. He is always with us. And that's what we see here with David. After David sins, he's not sent to a corner to think about what he's done. You know, God loves him too much for that. What we're going to see happen is God endures the dark days with David. And that brings us to another truth. And that is, even though we sin, God never leaves us. And this is really good news because the dark days are just beginning for David. It only gets worse, actually. And over the next six chapters, they're, they're some of the darkest chapters in Scripture. And chapter 13 specifically, I think, is, is maybe the darkest chapter in Scripture. Because what happens in chapter 13 is two horrible scenes play out with two of David's sons. So first, there's David's son, Amnon. And what Amnon does is he commits sexual sin. What Amnon does is he sees a woman, he sins for her, and he takes her. And what's worse is that this woman is actually his half-sister, Tamar. And as you read this story, it's, it's just gut-wrenching to see the toll that this takes on Tamar. Because after Amnon violates Tamar, he just leaves her in utter ruin. And Tamar is referred to as a desolate woman. And so Amnon commits sexual sin. And then we come to another son of David, and that's Absalom. And Absalom commits murder. Absalom, just like his father, commits murder. And so Absalom, he happens to be Tamar's brother. So when Absalom finds out what Amnon did to Tamar, Absalom is furious. And he decides he's going to do something about it. And so he is just waiting for the right moment, waiting for his opportunity. And he actually waits two years until he gets his chance. And then he sees his chance. And he tells his servants to go and strike down Amnon. 
And just like we learned last week, servants do what servants do. They follow orders. So the servants go and they murder Amnon. So what we see is just like his father, Amnon, commits sexual sin, and then just like his father, Absalom, commits murder. And so just like God said would happen, evil is rising up from within David's own family. And as this is happening, I think it's fair to ask, like, why? Where is all this evil coming from? Like, yes, David sinned, and so there's consequences of his sin. But even then, like, why did David sin? Like, why do we sin? Why does this happen? If God is good, and he made us just to enjoy his goodness, why would we ever sin? Why would we ever go a different way? And at some point along the way, David, or God actually spoke to David about this. He actually answers this question. He explains this. He gives David some insight. And we see it in Psalm 36. So Psalm 36 is another psalm of David. And it starts like this. David says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. Like God has actually shown me where all of this is coming from. And, and he says it starts with our eyes. In verse 1, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. So what does this mean? No fear, no respect, no awe, no reverence, no real understanding of who God is. What David is saying is, is we don't see God for who he really is. When we don't see God for who he really is, we're in danger. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 3. When the serpent tempts Eve, what does he do? He shows up and he immediately takes aim at God. The first four words the serpent says are, did God actually say? And you can just hear the tone. Did God actually say you can't eat any of this delicious fruit? What kind of God is that? Man, he sounds like a pretty terrible guy. You can't trust him. And so what is the serpent doing? He's taking God's, or he's taking Eve's big view of God, this big full view of God, and the serpent is starting to shrink it down. It reminds me when I was a kid and I got to go to my grandparents' house. Like most kids, going to grandpa's, going to grandpa and grandma's house was awesome. We always look forward to going to grandpa and grandma's house because I love my grandpa and my grandpa's awesome. My grandma's great too, nothing against grandma's. But I just love my grandpa. I love hanging out with my grandpa. Uh, and he only had one rule, and his rule was don't play in the woods. And I'm like, no big deal. I'm hanging out with grandpa, so it's all good. I won't play in the woods. That is, until my cousin comes along. And my cousin, he's like, did grandpa actually say we can't play in the woods? I'm like, yes. And I used to think that was fine and that grandpa was awesome, but now all of a sudden I think maybe grandpa's not awesome. And maybe what's really awesome is playing in the woods. And so uh, the wheels start turning, and I'm like, uh, okay, yeah. So we, play, we went and we played in the woods. And it was fine, I guess, I don't really remember, because after we played in the woods, I got poison ivy all over my body. And so there was a reason grandpa told us not to play in the woods. And I was itching and scratching and oozing for the rest of the week. I'm not bitter. It's fine. Um, but that's what happened. And that's what happens. 
It's the same old trick Satan has been using since the beginning, anything to shrink our view of God. He says, did God actually say, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart? Did God actually say, love your enemies and pray for them? Did God actually say, don't be afraid because he knows what you need? Yes, actually, yes, he did say all those things, and all those things are true. But when you say it like that, all of a sudden, I start to doubt, and it it starts to feel like maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's because Satan is an accuser. He will do anything he can for us to have a smaller view of God. And that's not all. If we read on in Psalm 36, we learn another thing. David says this. He says, in their own eyes, talking about the wicked, people who sin, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect their own sin. So the accuser's second trick is to do anything he can for me to have a bigger view of myself, for me to flatter myself. And if we go back to the garden, we see the same thing. What does the serpent say? He says, go ahead, eat the fruit, because God knows when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened. He says, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Who needs God? Eat the fruit and then you get to be God. That's way better. And David, I believe, has unique insight into these lies. Because at a time when kings went to war, David stayed home. And I believe he was tricked into a smaller view of God. Does God really know what's best for me? And a bigger view of self. I'm the king. And that brings us to another truth, that sin starts with a small view of God and a big view of self. And so David's going to help us with this. But before we get to that, let's go back to the story. So what's been happening? So David's sons committed these horrible sins. And then the evil just keeps on coming. So after Absalom kills Amnon, he, ha- he goes away for a little while. But then after a few years, he comes back. And Absalom has this really bright idea. You know, he starts to think, you know what? I think I could make a much better king than my dad. I think I'd be a way better king than David. So he invests four years of his time talking with the people of Jerusalem and just trying to turn their hearts against David and toward himself. And he's actually pretty successful at this to the point where he feels like he's ready to go to war against his dad and take the kingdom. And so we read about this, 2 Samuel 15, 13, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So this is another dark day for David. He's endured all this evil already, and then on top of that, the hearts of his people are going after Absalom. He feels, I'm sure he can feel the kingdom just slipping away. So what's David going to do? Well, we pick it up in verse 14. It says, Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So by this time, David knows the drill. He's like, I know how this works. 
My son is coming against me. This is the sword. This is the violence that God warned me about. And he knows he has to get away and get on his face before God. And so that's what we see in verse 30. It says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So while the weeping, while the tears, I think it's because this is not the way it's supposed to be. David is the anointed king. He should be on the throne. But years after his sin, he is still suffering the consequences. So this is the first time the Mount of Olives is mentioned in Scripture. And it's described as this place of worship. So as as David makes this climb up the Mount of Olives, I wonder what might be going through his mind. And I think Psalm 36 gives us an idea. So we're going to pick it up in verse 5. So after David has analyzed, you know, the root of sin, where does sin come from, he turns his focus to God. And this is what he says. He says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. He gives us this beautiful picture of God and who God really is. In the face of sin's lies, trying to sell us a smaller view of God, what David does is he gives us this gift of this really big, appropriately big view of God. So I want us to just go through this. He says the stead, his steadfast love reaches to the heavens. I read that and I just imagine a night sky. So a night sky full of stars and, and just picking out the one that you think might be the farthest one away and knowing that God's love goes beyond that. God's love reaches beyond anything I could ever imagine. And so that means that God's love sees everything and God's love covers everything. And then he says his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And I think of it like this. If his love reaches to the heavens, then his faithfulness just fills up all the space in between. The wind, the clouds, the rays of the sun, they're reminders of God's faithfulness. That God is always working. He is involved in every detail of everything, everywhere. And then he goes on and he says, His righteousness is like the mountains. God's character, his goodness, they never change. He is constant and he is trustworthy. David knows this is true because he's experienced the pain of going against God, and now he's experiencing the peace of trusting God. And then finally he says, your judgments are like the great deep. And this is my favorite line in this whole psalm, his judgments are like the great deep. Because this word for great deep can be translated abyss. It conveys this idea of chaos, It's the same word used in Genesis 1-2, describing the earth before God starts his work of creation. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what this verse is telling us is that God has no fear of the depths. 
He brings justice to the depths. There is no sin too deep for him to reach. In his work of creation, he spoke order into chaos. And into the depths of sinful human hearts, he speaks life where there is death. So in this verse, we get, we get love to the heavens, faithfulness to the skies, righteousness like a mountain, and justice into the depths. And I can just see these images filling David's mind as he makes this climb up the Mount of Olives. He's been in this deep pit of suffering. He's faced utter darkness, but the journey to God is worth every step. And, the, and, and it gets even better. Because the good news about God is that he is not distant, he is near. So we read on, David says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So here's the thing, the accuser feeds us this pack of lies about God and about ourselves. He says, God will never be enough. You know who's enough? You're enough. And in the face of these lies, David tells us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. He says, we can feast on the abundance of his house. We can drink from the river of his delights. He is a fountain who is more than enough. And that brings us to our final truth for today, and that is that God is bigger and better than we think. So uh, if you're serving communion, uh, please come on forward. Um, so earlier I said that this was the first time the Mount of Olives is mentioned in Scripture, as, as David is fleeing the chaos and evil of Jerusalem, and he is going to be with God. The Mount of Olives is mentioned again in Luke 19. And in Luke 19, Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. He's actually coming to Jerusalem, and he's days away from this gruesome death. And in verse 41, this is what it says, When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So again, why all the tears? Why all the weeping? And again, it's because this is not the way it's supposed to be. When Jesus saw the city, what did he see? He saw people suffering the consequences of sin. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus says, I wish you could see it. I wish you could see things as they really are. And then what Jesus does is he descends the Mount of Olives, he leaves the comfort and peace of his heavenly Father, and he goes to deal with our sin. Jesus plunged into the depths of our sin, and he took it on himself. He nailed every last bit of our sin to the cross so he could cover every last bit of it with his blood. And by covering our sin, Jesus sets us free. Because God hates sin. God hates sin because sin hates us. 
It steals, it kills, it destroys us from the inside out. And God knew this about sin. He knew this about sin from the beginning of time, and so he had a plan. And his plan was his son. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever makes up their mind to trust in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Because of Jesus, sin doesn't have the first word and it doesn't have the last word. God does. And just like God told David, he tells us today, I choose you. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray.